10th installment of our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Now, we just want to remind you that the next episode of Discovery, episode 10, will not be available for viewing until after the new year on January 7th. But during the hiatus for the show, as promised, we will provide three special podcasts to provide a deeper dive into the series and its context within the Star Trek universe. In our first special installment that we posted a couple of weeks ago, our podcast provided another look at the first nine episodes of Discovery. Today, we will look at the treatment of people of color within the Star Trek universe, focusing primarily on the television series. First, we'll want to provide more clarity on our views of race and culture. That is, when we discuss people of color, we are talking more in terms of culture, not race. Yeah. Um, race, for the most part, what we talk about it as is a social uh, political construct, um, kind of designed to justify the dominance of one group over other people um, that's been developed throughout society for several centuries. Uh, so culture has to, has to do more with a common set of mores and traditions, cuisines, history, uh, lifestyle choices by a group of people. Um, so we try to recognize that within a group of people, where whether they be called Chinese or Pakistani, African American or Latino, what we're really doing is that they are they will be a cultural subset that departs from the norm within any group. However, what we're really talking about is that there's a pattern of customs and behaviors which can easily be identified with that specific culture and therefore with the people who are part of that culture. So now let's dive into our analysis of people of color as represented in, Star, in the Star Trek series. So let's first talk about uh, the original series. And we would be remiss if we did not say that the original series was a groundbreaking cultural phenomenon in regards to multicultural casting. The second pilot for the show allowed producer Gene Roddenberry to hire a more ethnically diverse cast to portray a future starkly different than any other science fiction depictions, whether it be in television or um, in film. According to Roddenberry, by, this, by the time of the, of the period the show is set, that is the 23rd century, Earth had eradicated racial strife along with need and want, although conveniently it has never explained how such enlightenment came about. Well, it's easy to do it that way. You just say it's done and you, then you don't have to worry about the equation, how it got there. Yeah, so. That's exactly right. So, however, the series did explore issues of ethnic cultural conflict in regards to other aliens, most notably in the episode, Let This Be Your Battlefield. In this story, two beings are almost identical with the exception of their faces. 
and one of the uh, one of the beings, his face is black on the right side and white on the left side, and with the other being, his face is white on the left side and black on the right side. Yet they both hate each other for no ra rational reason. Are engaged and they're engaged in a seemingly endless battle fueled by their animosity for each other. Right. There's also um, elements of xenophobia and distaste of people because of their differences that display themselves in other episodes. Specifically, one of my favorite um, original series episodes, uh, the um, Balance of Terror. One of the main plot points is the discovery that the Romulans look very similar to the Klingon. I mean, um, to the Vulcans, rather. And so there's an incident on the crew that we never see again in the entire series who all of a sudden becomes suspicious of Spock because of his physical and racial um, similarity to the, to the Romulans as we finally see them. So it's not just in more obvious episodes like with Let This Be Our Last Battlefield, but it's also something that he plays with. The main point that I think we have with the original series is that they do seem to have some harmonious um, way of working, that there is that, that all races have seemed to have assimilated into a group, a collective group. And so uniqueness based on racial and cultural differences aren't always played out as much as in this show. That's part of the idea of this racial utopia that Roddenberry's trying to put out there. So, um, so again, there are <clears throat> times that the crew shows this xenophobia, mm -hmm. and um, use, and oftentimes it's expressed with abhorrence of their arch enemies, the, as Gary was talking about, uh, the Klingons and the Romulans. And they're, both of these um, uh, groups are depicted with darker, more swarthy appearance than human Caucasians. This follows the Hollywood tradition of casting evil or sinister characters with a darker hue, whether they are of African, Asian, Middle Eastern, or Hispanic descent. So, um, and also despite Roddenberry's intention... Uh, the original series still reflected uh, constraints posed by race during the time the show was produced in the late 1960s. So we want to talk about a few, uh, just mention a few of those. So uh, first of all, instead of portraying a future representing a mosaic of diverse cultures, the Enterprise represented a world uh, view where Caucasian, Ural, American culture stood as the norm. Right, right. White people could have friends and friendize with other white people. However, any of the people of color, be it Uhura or Sulu, they only have friends that are from other races. They don't have any other characters on the show that are of their own racial ethnicity that they actually... Co cohabitate or engage with. The only exception to that is this brief scene in um, in Man at uh, Man Trap, where the beast transforms itself into a 
Nigerian male that comes at Uhura in an attempt to try to seduce her and steal her salt in her body. But still, he's not her friend. And she even no, says... No, she, she's never seen him before. Right, she's never seen him before. Exactly. Because right. she says, I, I, I would remember somebody like you. you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah right. yes, exactly. And the other point we're going to make is that although people of color outnumber Caucasians on Earth, mm-hmm. I mean, even today, right. the future as re, as uh, revealed by Star Trek or represented by Star Trek shows a crew in which white people outnumber people of color and white males uh, held most of the positions of authority. Right. There were never any female commanders of any prominence in Starfleet there, and, and that's just evident. In fact, we, we rarely see any other species re- reflecting in authority figures in Starfleet in the original series. Exactly. So we want to now look at a uh, closer at two um, regular series members uh, and um, the way they were depicted on the original series. And that would be Hellsman Hikaru Sulu and Lieutenant Ohura. With few exceptions, these crew members remained on the periphery of storylines, as and as well as camera shots, uh, and their ethnicities seemed to be downplayed as the series moved along. Uh, for instance, a Japanese American actor George Takei, uh, who played Sulu, Sulu, who was ethnically Japanese tended to embrace European heritage over Japanese. So, for example, in the episode Naked Time, he picks up a sword and he, you know, they say he fancies himself as a swashbuckler a swashbuckler in the European tradition. He's like D'Artagnan. That's what he calls himself. Exactly. And also, even though he has more seniority than any other Hellsman, he only takes command of the ship once when Kurt and Sp- Kirk and Spock are on an away mission. Chekhov, a younger, less experienced officer with a Russian background, is given command of the captain's chair and has substantial more screen time than Sulu. Right, even though he comes in in the, in the second season. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And another thing, Gary, is that, you know, I definitely have mixed feelings when it comes to the character of Uhura, who is supposed to be of West African descent. For the most part, she is relegated to showing off her legs and serving as a space telephone operator. And um, and she also falls out of her chair quite a bit and flails <laughs> a, uh, around on the bridge when the ship is hit by enemy fire. In one historic episode, Captain Kirk kisses her, and this is uh, perhaps the first interracial kiss ever shown in a dramatic series. However, the kiss um, uh, uh, in a dramatic series, again, between you know, somebody of African descent and a Caucasian. Right. However, the kiss is not by mutual consent. Right. Instead, it's forced on them by an alien as entertainment. Right. That's uh, Plato's stepchildren. Plato's stepchildren, right. that episode. Yeah. Now, um, the actress, um, who is an African-American, her name is Nichelle Nichols. 
And she was so disturbed by the limitations of her role that she desired to quit. However, as she tells it, she discussed this matter with the uh, famed civil rights leader, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And he's the one who convinced her to remain on the show as a symbolic reminder to other black people that there was a place for them in the future. Now, you know, Gary, I remember as a child um, watching uh, the original series, uh, and I actually anticipated seeing, you know, uh, Uhura. And even though I knew she only had a few lines, I really, you know, waited to hear those every week. You know, it was really comforting to see someone who shared my cultural background on television. It definitely made me feel closer to the show. And after the show went off the air, um, you know, after three seasons, I continued to follow her career throughout my life. Still, one definitely uh, can conclude that the talents of both Nichelle Nichols and George Takei were vastly underutilized throughout the run of uh, the original series and even the film versions that were to follow with the, uh, in the next two decades. Yeah, I think that's the cha- that's unfortunately the the constraint that existed at the time. I mean, the the producers, Roddenberry, the other writers, think they're doing something revolutionary by putting uh, an ethnically Japanese and an ethnically African American person on the crew on the bridge. So you see that on a regular basis, episode to episode. But then they don't provide them with any context. They don't mm-hmm. give them. They don't give them backstory, and they don't give them a great deal to do. So they 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 feel that just placing them there is revolutionary, and to a certain extent, in in comparison to the what television was like at that time, right. it is. But it's still unsatisfactory because they're right. they're objects. They're not subject in regards to the story. That's right. So let's move on to the next generation. Uh, There's not um, a lot that we want to say about that. (laughs) But uh, in The Next Generation, it featured two major cast members uh, related to today's theme. One was Worf, um, who was a Klingon, who was portrayed by an African-American actor, and Jordy, the chief engineer. Jordy LaForge. Yeah who was um, also portrayed by an African-American actor. Now, as far as Worf goes, he, um, again, was a Klingon who was raised by Russian humans. Um, Now, and Worf hungered to be connected to his Klingon roots. And we saw this arc of the storyline, which actually was very well written. Absolutely. Uh, And it allowed him to take uh, this journey of, you know, embracing his roots not only through Next Generation, but in the next series, Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm. However, the attempt to display a meaningful relationship with his young son, Alexander, failed. The child was cast as a Caucasian boy, and unfortunately, this child really had limited talents. Um, He never appeared committed to the same desire to come to terms with his heritage, in his case, sort of a by species heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so he never you know, had that same desire as his TV father. Um, 
Gary's going to talk a little bit more about, you know, this relationship between son and father when he talks about Deep Space Nine. So I'm going to leave that to him. But um, I also want to mention Jordy LaForge, who um, in the first five seasons, he always dated white women. Um, (laughs) Now, we personally have nothing against that, but... All of those relationships were short uh, short-lived, excuse me, and you know, again, it just never seemed like he even wanted to bother with any uh, women of color. Now, uh, that is not until season six in the episode Akiel, but um, in that case, he does display um, interest in a woman who looked ethnically of African descent. However, this character is actually of an alien species, uh, Halion. So even in that case, you know, he never, you know, expressed any kind of interest of a woman of color who was, you know, human. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Next Generation is an interesting um, circumstance because it's, it comes some 20 years after the, um, the, the cancellation of the original series. And although it's on syndicated television, Paramount puts a great deal of effort into trying to get this right. They had already had a failed attempt at putting on another Star Trek uh, reboot in the 70s. And so this one seemed as if they were making attempts to write in characters that had some, that were more engaging and create circumstances that would be more interesting. They, they actually elevated the level of, of talent for the most part by getting a lot of theater trained artists, specifically um, Patrick Stewart to play the captain. But you know, the, 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 the first two seasons of that show are almost without exception, completely unwatchable. I mean, the show's just awful. The writing is just horrendous. And it's not until the later season three and then on where the quality actually improves. Mm. Um, and, And when we look at how they deal with specifically people of color, there's two singular episodes that I think that kind of show the, the broad diversity of how they approach when when there's bad writing and then when there's excellent writing. Mm-hmm. And the first one is in the first season, obviously. It's it's an episode called Code of Honor, where on an away mission, the the Enterprise meets a, a planet where the culture is fashioned on an African nation. There's black people. They have a black authority that figures that are all male. Um... But the problem is that it treats them as if they're, they're it's it's a w- very westernized interpretation of an African country. It's it's very stereotypical. Extreme, extremely stereotypical. There's they're they're misogynistic. They're male dominated. They're um they they the they the 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 leader is very very um, attracted to Tasha Yar. So there's this whole thing about miscegenation where he think he finds this white woman this blonde white woman more appealing than any of the women on his own planet yes and he, he kidnaps her and whatnot not only because she's she's white and she's blonde but also she's one of the few she's a woman who physically overthrows his guard and so it's, there's a whole lot of very questionable uh, racial el- politics in that episode that just right. makes it really it's just 
really unwatchable. And, and it's insulting, too. It's extremely insulting. It's extremely insulting. It's one of the low points in that series. Most people don't ever talk about that episode. But um, but it is really, really, really bad. Um, one of the other episodes, however, that I think shows the other spectrum that, that the series got on is Darmok. We're, uh, we're shown that um, the Enterprise is meeting, is making first contact with an alien race. Again, it's clear that all the aliens are African-Americans, cat with, with heavy makeup. And the problem that they're having is in regards to communication. This culture, this race speaks in metaphor. So when they make references, when they try to talk about situations, they're already making references that come from their historical background, which if you have no knowledge of who and what they are, what their people have gone through, the references mean nothing to you. And, and so the universal translator is useless. It's absolutely useless. And they're, they continue to talk about things in a context where you don't understand them. And being frustrated with the initial attempt to make first contact, the commander of the alien group beams himself and Picard down to a, this, alien, this, this planet, mm-hmm. which has you know atmosphere, but also has dangerous wild animals. And his attempt is to try to build relation, build experiences between them where they can begin to understand and um, make a connection. Yeah. And, and it's a beautiful thing because there are parts, there are African cultures, there are African tongues that are built on metaphor that you have to understand the history of the people to understand the references. And that's also an aspect of black culture. That's that right. That when you make statements... There are certain statements that you make. You have to understand the historical context of behind those statements. That's right. And so that's actually that that one is far better written. It's far more exciting. Um, it's, it's it's it actually treats the characters as as unique individuals. Um, there is a growing understanding between Picard and the the alien commander over time. Because he the, he gets injured mm-hmm. fighting this beast, and he has and and during their their um, their fireside chats with one another, um, they begin to Picard begins to understand the references that he's making. So mm-hmm. so the so it actually shows a greater understanding. So even mm-hmm. though the commander dies in this attempt to make the contact, mm-hmm. he is they. Picard is able to make a connection between the two races and hopefully bring them into the Federation, which is the the goal from the beginning of the episode. That's exactly right. So, um, um, so again, that just shows that contrast of what you know if they're not thinking, mm. you know how bad an episode can be, and when they really. You know, think it through. Right. Think about cultural differences and right. how, how that would be manifested even in a science fiction story. They, they come up with something really fantastic. Exactly. Exactly. And again, I agree with you. That is one of my favorite episodes of The Next Generation. So let's move on to Deep Space Nine. Uh, I'm sorry, Deep Space Nine, which... Um, is definitely one of I think Gary's favorite. It's my favorite series. of the Star Trek right. series, right. and so Gary, why don't you talk a little bit about um, Cisco? 
Right. So, uh, once again, you have a show. This is the first time, however, when Star Trek is doing something extremely radical. They decide, as opposed to being based on a ship, they're going to put it on a station. And as opposed to having the traditional white male authority figure, this time they're going to have a black male. Which was re- which was even it was pretty amazing that they that they even thought to do this, um, and they go out and get not just any actor to play this role. They get Avery Brooks, who again theater trained actor, yes. somebody who has been very well known on stage and, sc- but for television you basically don't know him other than the character Hawk. Right. who was in Spencer for Hire and then eventually had his own show. So he's been presented as this aggressive, assertive black male and, and from those shows that he then brings um, a, that sense to the show as uh, as, as Cisco. And I, I think for our listeners, um, if you want to get a better sense of the difference it makes to have stage actors uh, playing these parts... Uh, go back and take a look at the first episode of uh, Deep Space Nine, right. and look at the confrontation between you know uh, John Luke Picard and Captain Cisco right. when they first meet. Right. Gary, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So you know the story. The the in in emissary, the pilot for Deep Space Nine. It begins actually during the battle with the Borg as they're trying to invade. Um, Earth, and specifically at Wolf 359, when Picard, who has been assimilated into the Borg, is now Lucutus, and he's commanding all of this. It's it's a scene where Cisco, at, on the ship that he was in charge of, loses it, but not only that, they lose in that battle, They all he also is loses his wife. Mm-hmm. And that's an issue that plays throughout the rest of the series. He, when he, when he's first um, told that he is going to be stationed on Deep Space Nine and that he's going to have to meet with Captain Picard, there's a clear sense of reluctance in regards to dealing with that. And there's this clear sense of anger because this is the man who is responsible for the death of his wife. And so when he finally goes to the, uh, to the conference room and he actually meets with Picard, underneath throughout that entire scene is a very clear tension that's been established that is not necessarily written into the lines. It's all subtext. Mm-hmm. And it's between these two, two really great stage actors who understand how to play were subtext. How to play subtext. How That's to play right. subtext. So, so, so what they're saying is is not really what they're what they're what, feeling, what, feeling, right. or even or even that the words they're using is not necessarily connected to what they're communicating to one another. Yeah, so it really does bring about a real richness to the scene, right, right. a real depth to the right, scene. Right. Uh, that. Um, you know, the more times you see it, the more times you'll appreciate right. it. The more you see that they're doing in there, because the moment that that um, Cisco mentions we've met before, he keeps saying that, and, and and Picard has a question questions it because he doesn't remember ever meeting Cisco. That's right. But he says, "It says where did we meet?" And he says, "At Wolf Three Five Nine, and it stuns him. It stuns him because he has a responsibility to hand over this station." now that it's under Federation control, to a Federation commander. And at the same time, he's now being 
forced to relive this horrific moment where he was responsible for the death of a number of Starfleet. You talk about Picard. Right, 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 right. And so it's just it's just a extremely rich moment in that it's supposed to be something perfunctory, something routine that has a much richer aspect to it. And in fact, it plays heavily into Cisco's whole relationship to being placed on the station. So, so Gary, in what ways do you find uh, uh, this character of Cisco, who is played by African American actor, right. who is supposed to be African American? Right, right, right. right. Um, he, he's wh- from New Orleans. He's so, so, from Louisiana. So, how does how is this how is the characterization different than other Starfleet captains? Well, the thing about Cisco that I love is, first off, he has a relation. He has. He, Family is important to him. Family is extremely important to him. When he takes over the commanding of Deep Space Nine, he brings his son with him. And his, as I said before, his relationship with his wife is something that plays throughout the rest of the series. His sense of loss of her, his, sense, his desire to have another relationship, to, to, to rebuild the family that he lost during those battles. Um, and so I think it has a huge impact. The other thing about it is that outside of Deep Space Nine, Cisco is the only captain who we not only have him dealing with his son, but we also have him dealing with his father. So we have three generations of a black, fa- right. black male family right. that is depicted in this show. Right. And the, one of the things that's very evident, and, and, and Avery Brooks, the actor who plays Benjamin Sisko, talked about this, is that he wanted to make sure that there was a clear, loving relationship between father and son. In many cases, shows like this try to create some kind of antagonism between parent and child for dramatic effect. And you see this play out a lot of times where the child is rebellious and the parent doesn't understand and blah, blah, blah. And you just, it's, it's, it's a trope that we see in a lot of dramas. Mm-hmm. And even, and, and not, as opposed to not, uh, he didn't, he wasn't against having conflict, but what he didn't want to do is have it be in such a way that it would damage the core relationship on a continual basis because Cedric Loft, Lofton, the kid that played his son, was so young, Brooks took on a, a parental relationship with the boy, both on and off screen. All right. To the point where there are a number of scenes where he just has a conversation with them. And before the boy leaves, he gives him a kiss on the forehead or he hugs him mm-hmm. in a way that is not that, you know, is not written in the script. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he wants to make that connection with and, and show that sense of tenderness and love being displayed through physical contact. That's right. That's and that's right. something that you as you're watching the show, you see it occur as Cedric Lofton grows right. and gets taller, gets to the point where he can look Avery Brooks in the eye by, right. the, by the seventh season. But you also see it in the relationship between he and Brooke Peters, his father, when we're introduced to him. The actor who plays. Yeah, the, the Brock Peters, the, the actor who plays uh, Cisco's father. So we see that this, this, this sense of male-to-male physical intimacy mm-hmm. Um, affection being displayed is not something that's feared that doesn't damage the masculinity in one shape or form but it's actually an aspect and I think it's part of how Brooks himself Avery Brooks the the actor 
perceives how black men are presented on screen. Mm. And, and, and in many cases, how he himself was presented on screen, you know, through, through Hawk as this very aggressive, ultra-masculine shaft-type character in previous roles. In this one, he was going to show that there is a much more... Um, there was there's a greater variety of the way men express themselves in this world. Oh, well, and especially I would say uh, men of African descent, right. how they can express themselves. Right. And and so, and so I I think there was another um, aspect that we wanted to talk about, and that has to do with the fact that there were episodes in Deep Space Mind where they allowed. Um, you know, uh, an opportunity to talk about America's, uh, we're really talking about America's racial conflicts and discriminatory practices. Right, so right, right, right. Uh, can you talk about that? Uh, sure, that's not a problem. I can do that. In the third season of Deep Space Nine, there's a two-part episode called Past Tense where um, Cisco. Bashir and Jadzia Dax are on a mission and they're actually on a defiant coming home and somehow they're thrown into a time loop that puts them into San Francisco in 2024. And in that episode, although there's never any mention of racial characterization or, or overt aspects of prejudice, there is some wonderful, subtle elements in that story that kind of get that point across. Because when the three of them uh, end up in 2024, they're separated. Dax is actually not with them. Bashir and Cisco are found together. And because they're in this time period where they don't have any identification and no resource, no credits, no money... Um, they end up having completely different experiences. Mm. Um, with Jazia Dax, she gets actually approached and um, befriended by a an affluent white male who has authority and and, and a wonderful home. And he actually and that's because she's played she's played by a Caucasian at that time. She's yeah she's played by a Caucasian female, right. and he he assists her in coming into his home, getting um, dressed in the p- clothes of their period. She's Her hair is done. He provides her with a meal. He actually g- vouches for her, gives her funds that she can use to f- on her behalf. And as she's trying to f- connect with her crew me- members, he, tr- he makes attempts to try to help her do that. But the thing is, is that she has a completely different experience to what happens with Bashir and Cisco. Bashir and Cisco, a, a man from the Middle East and a, and, a, and, a, and a man of African descent, they find themselves also without the resources, identification, with no way of identifying themselves in any way, shape, or form. And what they find is that they're forced into this pinned area, this guarded, heavily fortified area, mm. where they where they find that the people in there, they're more impoverished, they're living in, in squalid conditions. In many cases, the people who have some illness or some malady, they, find, they can't get access to uh, adequate health care. 
And so it's a much different experience. And again, they don't ever make the statement that this is about a racial separation. But it's very clear that that Jadzia Dax's experiences are much different than those of Bashir and Cisco's. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is in the in the episode because of the uh, Cisco knows the history, mm-hmm. knows what happens. In fact, he's there at the moment when there are these great uprising this revolt that occurs that tries to break this this you know economic inequity tries to deal with it on in a, in a very in a, in a more aggressive system they you find that Cisco takes on the role of this revolutionary that he knows of a man named Griffin Bell mm. who leads these this rebellion that eventually breaks this this system and, and causes a whole host of what they call bell riots mm. that are that start here. So he becomes somebody who he's actually studied in history, mm. and he finds out that the the whole purpose of them going back, if you look at it in the cosmic sense, is for him to have this moment to help ignite this point when in in America um, the society begins to try to fight against the challenges that they've established because the just the um, the disparity, economic disparity between the haves and the have-nots has become so severe mm-hmm. that it's caused people to not have opportunities as they would naturally in America. All right. And uh, were there any other episodes that you would say, you know, definitely play on, you know, looking back at especially America's, you know, um, history of racial conflict? Well, one of my favorite episodes, in fact, my most, uh, one, my second favorite um, next uh, Deep Space Nine episode is one called Far Beyond the Stars. And it's in season six when Cisco, he's been having issues related to um, the Dominion War. They're, they're, they're fight. They, they have more resources, but they still find themselves stonewalled in regards to having some progress. And he's feeling the stress of leading the front lines against in the, in the war. And he begins to hallucinate. He begins to see people on the station that are dressed in mid-20th century clothing. They look, But they look just like members of the crew. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they, they're there and then they disappear. And then all of a sudden he finds himself transported into this... Um, 1950s New York, and he is no longer Benjamin Sisko, mm-hmm. but he is this black man who writes science fiction for this pulp magazine. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that although they are they've they've received awards and recognition for their writing, mm-hmm. he's never been seen by the outside public because he's a black man writing science fiction. All right, and they don't want the audience to know that they have a Negro writing the stories that they publish. That's right. And so one night he has a dream that inspires him, or, or the way his character Benny sees his time as Benjamin Sisko as a dream, and he interprets it as an inspiration. He creates a story that he wants to present for publication mm-hmm. about a black man who is the commander of a space station called Deep Space Nine, and All his right. name is Cisco. Mm-hmm. And so he basically is telling his own story, All right. and 
the story that everybody on the magazine thinks the story is great, but the publishers refuse to publish it mm-hmm. because, again, there's no way that in the mid-50s they're going to accept a story about a black man in, in, a, in authority running uh, a space station. Mm-hmm. And so eventually, René Aubin-Joir, who plays the editor of the magazine in, the, in this, this flashback, he, ex, he relinquishes and they do publish it. Mm-hmm. But then the publisher refuses to actually put the book out on the newsstands. And in fact, what you find out the the climax of the story is that the publisher has decided to pulp the entire run of the magazine that month, and that they'll just tell people they'll have a, a, another issue out later on. Mm. But he actually he's actually willing to eat the expense of having published the book for fear <clears throat> that they would have such a, a backlash from their audience um, in regards to seeing this story about a Negro running a space station. And that throws um it, that throws Benny over the the you know, he it's his last straw. He finds himself getting highly enraged by it. And he eventually ends up as as it turns out, he ends up being um <clears throat> put into a mental institution in the subsequent episode that we see later on in um season seven. Mm. So I mean, it really is a powerful episode. Oh, it's a Twitter-force performance by Brooks. Yeah, I would suggest our listeners, if you haven't seen it or or even if you have seen it, go back and revisit it. It's an excellent episode. And... um, so, so tell me, um, are there any other ways that Cisco's uh, culture was manifested on the show? Well, if you again, if you watch a student of the show and you watched it from the beginning, you'll notice that periodically the characters dress casually, um, either on away missions or or when they have shore leave. And with the case, in the case of both um, Benjamin Cisco and his son they have a tendency to have a very African influence to their attire. Mm-hmm. There's also an African influence to the way they decorate their quarters. And the the other aspect of it is that um, before we meet um, Cisco's father, we learn that he ran a, 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 a restaurant that specialized in Creole cooking mm. in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And, because, and we know that because... On several occasions, Cisco actually cooks for either a character that's uh, someone he's making a relationship with, or he cooks for one of the other characters in the show that he he invites over to his quarters and they have a conversation, um, Dax or somebody along those mm-hmm. lines. And so you really see how that plays out in regards to, you know, that cultural reference that of African Americans, the foods they use, the, mm-hmm. the 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 way they talk about um, putting together a meal to share with one another, mm-hmm. that's that's very culturally based, and mm-hmm. we see it playing out in that context. So I think those I think that's like one of the best examples. Again, it's a very subtle thing that you see running through throughout several of the episodes, mm-hmm. but it's something that just really gives a much richer experience to the character. To the characters, you don't see that um, with with Kirk. You see more of it with Picard. But oddly enough, although his his name is French, many of his 
cultural references throughout the mm-hmm. next generation are British. That's right. You know, his fascination with Earl T. Earl Grey. Mm-hmm. Um, his his the books that he talks about that he reads his manner of speech his, his his manner of speech all of those are culturally connected to being somebody from the UK right. as opposed to somebody from France the difference here with Cisco is that everything he does is plausible in the context of being an African American specifically from the southern region of America right and in regards to how the cultural references that he has and he connects with and how he approaches this. Um, they give him a romantic interest on the show later on in the series. She's a black woman, and she's a black woman who eventually he replaces for, in his heart the hole that's been there since his wife's death. Right. Um, so there's a great deal of... And, in, and before the show goes off the air, she's pregnant with his child. They've married and she's pregnant with their child. And so, again, he's he's the only um, character throughout the entire run of the series who lead character who has the opportunity of building... Who, who loses a family member... As able to rebuild his family over the course of the season. Definitely, series. definitely, and it, and it, and it and it really plays genuine. Yes, it does. You know, yes, it does. Uh, whereas you know, uh, we talked about Worf a little bit, right. and Worf, you know, is able to get married, and he also has a, a son, right? But. It never seems real, you know. Yeah. I mean, after a while, they, you know, the wife is killed, right. his his mate is killed, right. and the son is sent away. Right. So I mean, his son is sent away so much that even when he marries Dax in in Deep Space Nine, Alexander's not there. Right. Exactly. So. Um, they so, try to forget that boy. Yes, yes. So it definitely is a difference between, um, you know, Worf's familial relationships and what you see with Captain Sisko. And there's one other thing um, I want to point out before we move on, and that is um, contrasting, you know, the way they were able to show culture and the importance of that culture in Sisko's life um, as contrasted to... Um, Dr. Julian Bashir, who you had mentioned before, Dr. Julian Bashir, you know, we're going to assume that he is of Arab descent, that character is of Arab descent, although um, they never really uh, uh, stated um, on the, uh, in the television series. Right. Uh, but Bashir, you never really get the sense of how his ethnicity informs who he is. Right. Um, instead, they talk about... He's very assimilated, but he's like a traditional person of color yeah. in Star Trek. He's extremely assimilated. Right. So definitely you have that sort of contrast between the two. Even though you do, there is an episode where you see his parents. Right, right. And his parents are played by actors who are ones of Pakistani descent and yes, the other ones father, of yes. Arab descent. Right. But again, you don't see how that ethnicity plays into forming who he is, whereas with the Cisco character, you definitely see how culture really affected or impacted the person he became. Right. But, but more, even more so with Cisco, you see how when the prophets come to his father and as a, as a black female who he has a relationship with, um, 
she takes on the persona of a black woman. Exactly. And, she, and, and so later in the later seasons, when he's having his fight as the emissary of the prophets, in you know, in a, in, in trying to take on the Powraith, she comes to him. She talks to him, and because he's he doesn't have any um, physical examples of his mother. And his father has been quite cryptic throughout his, most of his life about the woman, mm. and it's we don't we find out later on that it's because she's a prophet, and she came she she manifests a human figure for him, so that she could actually give birth to Cisco Benjamin Cisco, so he could be the emissary. So it's a it's a a cycle that that occurs. Definitely. So we're going to just spend just a moment, really, on Voyager and Enterprise, because uh, there's really nothing much to note about those series in regards to this theme. Now, again, you do have multicultural crews, uh, but uh, Starfleet still seems to, for the most part, embrace white Euro-American culture. Um, there is an exception um, in, in, if you look at the first year of Voyager, the character of Jacote, who was portrayed, uh, who in that first season is part of the Troika, uh, right. in Voyager. And supposedly Jacote is of Native American heritage, although right, right. they never say what nation he's right, with, right. but, you know, they kind of give this sort of it's general, gen- generic. generic, you know, Native American. Right. And... They, and the way that he talks and, you know, again, his behavior uh, is that that heritage is central to the way he, his mores and also the way he conducts himself. But after the first se- season, the character is demoted in uh, importance in favor of a holographic doctor for, you know, again, for the remainder of the series. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, that was an opportunity right. that, for whatever reason, and which we don't have time to go into, no. um, um, was really demoted in um, importance. It was, a, it's, it was unfortunate. It was really unfortunate because... The, it, the actor himself who played yeah, the... Yeah, Robert Beltran. You know, it was really strong. Very strong actor. And, and, and I thought that there was a great opportunity for them to... Do a number of stories that that could flesh that out and give him greater prominence and more importance in the total story of this crew that's trying to get back to their um, actual home. Exactly. So, but now let's go into uh, talk about discovery. Now, on a discovery, um, it really does break the tradition. Um, in dealing with diverse cultures in several ways, with one exception, and this is the exception, is that the crew members, despite their physical appearance, uh, for the most part are provided with WASP names. You know, And for those of you who don't understand what WASP is, WASP is White Anglo-Protestant Saxon names. Um, again, there are a few exceptions, but... Uh, for the most part, they are waspy names. For instance, Shazad Latif uh, plays the character, and but his character is called Ash Tyler. Uh, Rika Sharma played the character of Commander 
Ellen Landry. And Sonequa Martin-Green portrays Michael Burnham. And, you know, I Gary and I have had this discussion, and we really don't understand why uh, those characters couldn't be given names that would demonstrate more the, the diversity of the crew. You're missing one character. Who is it? The doctor, um, Hugh Colbert, right. is played by the actor Wilson Cruz, who's Hispanic in, in, in ethnic background. Right, right. And his name doesn't give us any kind of context for that. Not at all. However... And Discovery does break Star Trek traditions in many other important ways. And that is, for the first time, you have a show which includes a woman of African descent as one of the members of the Troika for the show. In fact, she's the main character. She's the main character, and her name is Michael Burnham. Uh, The actress, Sonequa Martin-Green, is allowed to portray the character Uh, which is informed by her personal cultural heritage. Uh, For instance, um, this is probably, you know, as far as Gary and I can remember, the second time in the uh, history of the television series um, in which a black woman is allowed to wear her hair in a natural style. Now, the first time was really brief. It was a cameo played by the real-life astronaut, uh, May Jameson. Right, May Jam- Jameson. So she had this cameo, right, in right. Next Generation, and she does wear her hair in a natural way. Right. Um, and there was one movie in which Nichelle Nichols, the as Uhura. Yeah, Star Trek, the motion picture, she wears her hair as an afro. Right. But very, very few times yeah. do you see. Um, um, people of African descent on these shows allowed to wear their hair in a natural way. And in fact, uh, Sonequa Martin-Green said she had to lobby, right. you know, for them to do this. Right. Originally, originally, her hairstyle was supposed to be modeled on the way her hair looks in the pilot episodes when she's first officer on the Shinzu. And her hair is straight. Her hair is straight. It's processed. It's very clear. You know, it's got it's it's got this interesting cut to it, but it was supposed to be that was supposed to be her hairstyle. And before the show got picked up, she petitioned that if the show were to be picked up, that her hair would be much more natural in its uh, texture and its appearance. And so that's the reason why there's a dramatic difference between what how she looks in the first two episodes to how she looks in episode three. And also you will see, you know, go back and look at a few episodes and you'll see that the way she talks, um, her eye rolls, her glances. A lot of her, yeah, her nonverbal actions in the, in the show. I, you know, they're definitely influenced by her own African-American <laughs> right, experience. Right. I mean, the funniest one is that whole scene when she has with Stamets where she, he, he says something very curt. And insulting to her, and she is she she roll she rolls her eyes and she, you know, she's working her mouth and she's not saying anything. And he calls her out on. He says, "What are you doing with your mouth?" And she's she's trying to work out a way to not tell you about yourself. I mean, it's just a wonderful it's a wonderful cultural moment because you very rarely see a black woman able to be angry and upset, but also understanding that in this context. There's a chain of command 
that she has to restrain herself within. And so that as an aspect of character is really a dynamic that we rarely see. And, and, and it's entertaining. It's exciting to be exposed to that. And, and so if you don't believe us that there's a difference in this portrayal of, you know, somebody who's supposed to have this sort of, you know, African-Americans, you know, sort of background or ethnicity, compares uh, Sonequa Martin-Green's um, performance to that of Zoe Saldana as Yuhura in the most recent Star Trek films. Oh, well. Now, Saldana, uh, who is of Dominican-American descent, you know, strips Uhura of any connection to her African heritage. In fact, if if it wasn't for the name, there would really be no connection at all between, you know, that character and her African heritage because you just don't see it. You don't see it in the way she dressed, the way she talks, you know, her hairstyle, anything. Um, in fact, her portrayal, even though, you know, I personally like, you know, her performance overall, but as far as trying to depict her ethnicity, you know, it's really more akin to a Californian uh, valley much, girl than so. it is from somebody from West Africa. Very much so. Yeah. She looks like a, a go-go dancer. Right, with the, with the you know, long ponytail, the long ponytail. And the short dress. Yeah. And she talks like a valley girl. Definitely. And so that's not my uhura. Right. <laughs> And um, another thing about Michael Burnham, let's go back to her, yeah, yeah, yeah. is that, you know, she's actually afforded the opportunity to save the day. You know, in many of the episodes, she's the one who comes up with the solutions. She's brave, she's caring, she's empathetic, and human. Um, these human qualities um, that have become more pronounced over time are credited to the shepherding of Captain uh, Giorgio, um, who unfortunately, you know, dies on the second episode of the show. But Captain Giorgio is played by somebody of, um, she's really of Malaysian descent. Right. Uh, but she's ethnically Chinese. Ethnically Chinese, but... Right. but um, she's she was born and raised in Malaysia. And she's brave, uh, resourceful, you know, a really strong uh, commander, um, <laughs> formerly of the Shinsu. Uh, the first time we see these two women of color, um, they're displayed with a very close, caring relationship. Mm -hmm. and, and again, on the other Star Trek series... You know, I really can't remember a time where they allow two women of color to, dis, you know, to even have a friendship. Right. Again, right. it was somebody, you know, of color. And, it, and again, it wasn't, you definitely didn't have a black female. Right. But if it was somebody of color, they would always have them friends with somebody who is Caucasian. Well, it was a white, and usually a white male. A real, usually a white male. Because we couldn't go that far without a white male being in some position of authority or interest. Right. Also, another thing about the Discovery crew, if you look at the crew as a whole, you know, look at all the shots, you see that it's populated predominantly by people of color and aliens. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there are, you know, white people on the ship too, mm -hmm. but it's not like in the other Star Trek series where it's predominantly white. Right. The background of Every episode, specifically on the bridge, you have people of color in regards to helmsmen. Um, 
you have um, navigators, you have people who are tactical, who are all people of color and sprinkled throughout the entire uh, bridge and throughout the rest of the show. So when we have interactions with the crew, it's a far more diverse crew than we've ever seen in any Star Trek series prior to this. And I and this is definitely demonstrated in the character of Captain Gabriel Lorca. Right. Uh so he demonstrates this mosaic that's now apparent. Uh for instance, he has this Hispanic surname right. Lorca. Uh-huh. You know, and we find out in the third episode that his ancestors made their living by selling fortune cookies. And he also speaks with a slight drawl that is from the American South. So here you have, within this one character, all these influences of these different ethnicities. Right, right, which it would be interesting considering in most Mm -hmm. urban environments you do have that kind of um, amalgamation of different ethnicities interplaying and influencing one another. We've seen this evident in regards to the, the development of musical traditions. That's how jazz was invented. You see this in regards to um, certain dishes, food, uh, quiz, specifically new cuisine, um, where different ethnic back, uh, cultural backgrounds influence in regards to spicing and the, and the way food is prepared. And so it's interesting that you see now with this man in him, again, he has a Hispanic surname, he has a southern drawl, and yet his family has some kind of tradition in, in association with Chinese cooking. Also, um, there's another um, um, point in this show that is a departure, and that is you have um, a romance between two people of color. Right, right. And that is between... Um, Michael Burnham and Ash Tyler. Right. And it really is refreshing to see this. Again, it's a um it's a romance that's based on respect. Um they have built this intimacy because they have these shared experiences um that they're building every week, but there's also this empathy between the two that you see. Right. I mean, if you look at the yes, if you look at the way the show has been played out, They've been put together in a lot of episodes uh, through circumstances, and they've developed an affinity and a connection between one another that may, may have started out as a curiosity, but has built into something much richer and deeper. They sense a, some, uh, some kind of connection that goes beyond just the experiences that they've shared. And I think that that's, that's the first time you've seen that on a show. where you And you rarely see in any television show, comedy or drama, yes. where you have two people of color being in a romantic relationship of any importance or development. Definitely. So uh, we applaud the producers, writers, and actors, and production staff for these breakthroughs and would like to encourage them to continue to find ways to allow crew members to evoke their cultural heritage. Right, right. So um, before that t- time, uh, we'll be back with our next podcast in three weeks, shortly after the New Year's. Our podcast at that time will provide an, an analysis of the trailer for the second half of the season and pro- provide predictions on what we think will happen. 
But until that time, please communicate us, with us through uh, Twitter at, at Star Trek AOD or on the Facebook page, um, Facebook.com, Star Trek AOD. But until then, live long and prosper. Yeah.